0: One time when I was in high school, our teacher gave us a really strange assignment, it was strange to me at the time, where we had to write out our own obituaries. I don't know if that's something you've ever done. Writing out your own obituary, what you think and hope people might say about you after you're gone, after you die. And I probably, with my buddies, tried to make a joke out of the whole thing, but I can remember it being a very sobering thing, even as a teenager. Because on one hand, you know, none of us, we, we don't like to think about our own mortality. We don't like to think about death. But beyond that, the, the point of the, the project was to, to, to consider your legacy. I mean, am I going to live in such a way that people will remember me and celebrate me after I'm gone? Even for a teenager, that was a sobering thought. You know, Mark Twain said, A funeral is where people lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. And you know, for a lot of people, that's true. It really is. But the goal for us as followers of Jesus, the goal for us, listen, your life goal is not simply to be remembered and celebrated after you're gone. And I hate to tell you this, but your great-great-grandchildren probably won't even know your name. I don't know mine. The point can't be that people will remember us and celebrate us when we're gone. Our legacy as Christians is simply this. Were we, are we now, faithful to God and to the things God has called us to do? That may not sound very romantic. It may not sound worth remembering, but that is the biblical call for us. Are we faithful to God and the things that God called us to do? And so the question for today is, how do we wisely and faithfully steward the time that God has given us? That's what Paul is calling us to here in Colossians 4. How do we live in such a way that we honor God and the purpose that God put us on this earth for whether God gives me 40 years or 90 years or somewhere in between is really irrelevant. What am I doing with the time that I've been given? And y'all, so much of Colossians reflects this great calling, what we've been walking through these last couple of months. Colossians, which tells us that we live by faith in Jesus. That's our, that's our reason for existence, to live by faith in Christ, Jesus who saved us, and Jesus who even right now Is conforming us to his image, to his heart, and his character. We just got out of chapter three. We spent a couple of weeks in chapter three where Paul gives us the practical commands of our faith to reject sin, to take on, to put on righteousness, to love the church and serve one another, to love our families well, to work as an act of worship to God. Paul pretty much covers everything. But he's careful right here in the last chapter as he rounds the corner to close. Paul is is careful to address our place in the world. Uh, There is no such thing as a private Christian faith. It may mean a lot to you privately and personally, great. But it's not meant to be held in and separated out from the rest of your life. And so we've got to be serious about the outward nature, the outward witness of our faith. Paul does not finish Colossians without hammering this nail down for us. So there's two primary things he deals with. We just read them. The first is prayer, which of course is very personal. But the second is witness, is your outward expression of faith in what you do and how you speak to those around you. Prayer and witness. Those things seem to be different, separate, but Paul brings them together in a wonderful way. So let's take a look at it together. Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 2 again, where Paul commands the church, he says to us, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. What does it mean to be devoted to prayer? Uh, Mark, in the gospel of Mark chapter 1, Mark tells us that, that Jesus, one day, one normal day, Jesus, while it was still dark, early in the morning, He got up, he left the house, and he went away by himself to a secluded place to pray. Before the world was awake, Jesus was in prayer. Luke tells us that that was his habit. Luke says that Jesus would often withdraw from the crowds to desert places in seclusion to pray. Y'all, We we have in our Bibles um, many wonderful examples and models of prayer, many, but none greater than Jesus himself. Jesus, if if anybody didn't need to pray in some sense, it would have been the Son of God. He could have handled things just fine on his own. But he set the example as a person devoted to prayer. He didn't do anything apart from prayer. And so I'm going to make a profound statement here for us this morning. You can write this down. If you're going to be devoted to Jesus, you have to be devoted to the things he was devoted to. If we're going to be followers of Jesus... We have to devote ourselves to his way of life. How did Jesus live? He soaked his life, everything he did, in prayer. See, devotion to prayer for us is not just a Christian checklist of things we ought to do. Prayer is a definitive statement that I need God for everything. I am totally dependent, I am needy. If God doesn't come through for me, then nothing will happen. Nothing good in my life exists apart from his hand. And prayer is an act of worship. It's our belief that God alone is good, that God alone can run the universe, and that God alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. A lot of times we make prayer out to be simply throwing out to God the things we need for the day or praying just before meals as a, as, a, as a habit, as something that we just do because we were raised that way. But prayer for us is a statement of faith. What do I really believe about God? It's going to be revealed in how I pray and how often I pray. And so I, you know, I'll raise my hand first as someone who I, I, just, I need to grow tremendously in my devotion to prayer, I really do. And the reason I need to grow, the reason I feel deficient, part of it is, honestly, just because I'm lazy and I'm forgetful and I get distracted. Maybe you're that way too. But a big part of it is pride. Y'all, there's a, there's a big part of me that I want to believe that I can do life just fine on my own. And I'll say all day that I need God, but in the operating realities of my life, I don't pray like I really need him, like I really believe that I need him. And so but before we, we move on in terms of what does it mean to devote ourselves to prayer, how do we actually do it, we have to ask ourselves that question. Do I, is my life reflective of this kind of devotion? When Paul says, devote yourself to prayer, would my face be there in the dictionary, in the definition? I, I suspect a lot of us have a lot of work to do in this area. Now, Paul tells us how to do it. It's not just a, a blind command. He says, listen, be devoted to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So there's a practical nature to prayer here. Uh, keeping alert in it. You know, in one sense, that means stay awake while you're praying. I mean, and I'm not joking about that. A lot of times we save prayer to the very end of the day when we're laying in bed. There's nothing wrong with that. But we fall asleep so easily, like the disciples in the garden who fell asleep continually when Jesus was sweating drops of blood. Couldn't you stay awake and pray with me for just one hour? In the moment of his greatest need, they couldn't. Their flesh was weak. That's us too. But keeping alert is not just staying awake. It means that we treat prayer with with a sense of urgency and importance. That when my feet hit the ground at the beginning of every morning, prayer is first on my lips. And again, I, I'm not boasting in that. That's, that I need that. I need to grow in that too. That we're alert in it. It's not a casual hobby. It's not a side project. It's not something we reserve only for, for dinner time. We're alert in prayer. We're urgent in prayer because we believe truly that we need God every hour. I need him for everything. But Paul also says it's not just an urgent thing, it's a thankful thing. It's, a, it's, it's thanksgiving, it's gratitude. Prayer is not just asking for needs. That's a big part of it, sure. But prayer is an attitude of worship. That when we speak back to God what we're grateful for, what he's done for us, that is worship itself. And for a lot of us, uh, if we only prayed for things we're thankful for, we'd never lack for, for content. There's, there's nothing in my life, that, that if it's good, that hasn't come from God. James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It comes from above. And so if all I ever did in prayer was just thank God for things, then I'd never run out of stuff to thank him for. And you wouldn't either. Okay? So there's, a, there's an attitude about our prayer, an urgency about our prayer. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a conviction for me. I'm just going to share my conviction here with you this morning. Are you a person who is devoted to prayer? Or are you, you know, maybe you struggle like me. There is, if you're honest, there's a laziness, there's an indifference, there's distraction, there's busyness, there's boredom. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm just going to tell you this whatever the other uh, ancillary issues are, the deep rooted issue is pride. I don't think I really need God, and therefore I don't come to Him as a needy child, as a grateful child. Maybe there's an entitlement in me. The good things that I have in my life, I think I deserve them, and therefore I don't give thanks. Whatever it may be, Paul's command here is to be devoted to prayer because it's a, an expression of what we really believe. Um, and I don't think we can ever really move forward in the practical commands of our faith unless we're devoted to prayer. So everything that's about to come after this is, is perhaps for us just window dressing, unless my heart is really sincerely devoted to God in prayer. I'm not sure that I'll ever step across the line of the commands of Scripture. So I'm just going to... Some of us, that's what we need today. We could stop the sermon right here. We're not going to. But that might be enough for us to take that home and to wrestle with God in terms of what is it in my heart that keeps me from prayerfulness. But Paul isn't done because Paul does something interesting. He wants to connect the internal private reality of prayer to the greater call of God to all of us that we would witness publicly, a public life, that prayer fuels. Now now look at this in verse 3. He says, and he's making a request here, he says, "...while you're praying, pray at the same time for us as well," that's the apostles, "...that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak." So Paul says, pray for us, pray for God's servants, the apostles. And you notice what Paul is praying for? Not for better circumstances. And that would be an easy thing for him to reach for in this moment. He's in in jail. He does not pray, say, pray for me that I'll get out of prison. That would have been a good thing, but that's not what he asks for. He prays for an open door of ministry and for wisdom and clarity and boldness In sharing the gospel. So two things stand out right here for me. When Paul asks them for prayer, two things. One, he's not praying for himself primarily. He's praying for other people. Any prayer that Paul has for himself, he just wants to be a funnel. He wants to be a conduit. Pray for me that ultimately I may be a light for Christ so that others might become Christians too. That's his desire is for others. It's a very unselfish prayer. But then secondly, you see Paul's dependence on God. We just talked about that. That prayer is a posture of dependence of need. Paul says, if God doesn't open this door, then what I do is of no effect. Pray that he would open a door wide for the word. And y'all, that always strikes me as strange because the Apostle Paul is very likely the most passionate and successful missionary evangelist who's ever lived. We, we know from, from, from reading his letters how brilliant he was, how persuasive he was. Paul had shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He had shared it thousands of times at this point in his life. He could do it in his sleep. He was proficient. No one was better at this than him. And yet his prayer, and he prays this frequently, we see it in Ephesians and in other places, He prays, if God doesn't open this door, if God is not the one acting first and paving the way and softening the hearts of those who hear me, if God doesn't do that, then what I do is of no avail. What I do doesn't matter at all. Paul was completely dependent on the sovereign power of God. God alone saves sinners. Paul doesn't. And he understood that in his his maturity. The more mature he got, the more dependent he became because he understood that only by the power of God could he do anything at all. And y'all, I want to share that before we enter into the command here of this scripture, I want to grant that to us as an encouragement that when we talk about our role in the world, our outward witness to the world, which are, we're all responsible for, the weight does not rest squarely on your shoulders and on mine. The weight is on God's shoulders. God is the one Who brings salvation. God is the one who opens doors for ministry. God is the one who will grant us clarity and wisdom and boldness to speak the same way that he did Paul. And so what Paul is about to call us to here is not dependent exclusively on you and me. And a lot of times when we hear talks about witness and evangelism, we we take that with a very heavy dose of guilt and fear and and, um, trepidation because I can't do this. No way. I just want to encourage you, Paul couldn't either. Paul couldn't either. So our encouragement is that God produces this kind of life and this kind of opportunity. The effectiveness is God's to give, and it's his, uh, it's his um, trail to blaze. We don't do this alone. Now, before we get into uh, the command here, I, I want to confess again that I rarely pray like Paul. And I- I'm going to guess that for most of us, you don't either. That when I pray, I have a lot of things I pray about. They're good things. They're right things. But how often do I pray? How often do you pray like this? God, will you open a door for your word today? Will you open up an opportunity for me today to share your grace, to be a light of Jesus? That's a different kind of prayer, isn't it? And and I I would encourage us even now to to try to start our day that way, to start the day. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for giving me life and breath. Thank you for my family. We we all all have our own list, and that's wonderful. But Lord, would you open up to me a door today? Would you make my life count today for the sake of the gospel, for something bigger than me? That's Paul's prayer. And, uh, And for me, not just as a pastor, but as a person, I need to pray that way. Uh, maybe we're scared. If you, if you pray it, God might actually come through, you know. I, th- I, I have a sense that he would. But to pray it is fearful because if, what if God does open the door? What then? Then I've got to walk through it. Right? But again, he gives you the, the power, the boldness to do that too, just as he did with Paul. So we've got to start to pray this way. And here's why. Look at verse 5. Here's a great command for us to take to heart. Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Now, this would have been very meaningful to the Colossian church. The Colossian church was very small. It was a small town, Colossae anyway, but they were a a vast minority in the surrounding culture. So basically, every interaction that these people had in their day-to-day lives, it would have been with non-Christians, people who didn't share their faith. They weren't surrounded by a Christian culture or even the appearance of a Christian culture like what we have uh, here in the South. And so Paul says, because of your constant interactions with people who don't have your faith, uh, live with wisdom. Live with wisdom. Conduct yourselves wisely. Now, here's what that means. That means that on one side, we, we live in such a way that we don't mimic the culture and the culture's activities and behaviors and beliefs. We don't try to blend in to keep the peace and to be approved of and accepted. That's a a great temptation I know for some of us, for me, to wanna just blend in, to wanna just kind of uh, hunker down and and endure the culture, even if we don't really like it, but we're not gonna stand out, because standing out gets you left out, gets you pushed out. Paul says, no, you live wisely. Part of what that means is that you live out the distinctives of your faith. To be a Christian is to be different. It's to be the light of the world, Jesus said, and the salt of the earth. We are a unique people. You can't obey the commands of the scripture. You can't follow Jesus and not stand out. So conduct yourselves with wisdom. Don't blend in and lose your witness. But you know, another thing Paul has in mind here when he says wisdom, he's also talking about attractiveness, which means you're not standing out for Jesus if you're acting like a jerk. It does us no good. It does us no good to be very uh, overt, you know, um, loud Christians who are angry and obnoxious and we look down our nose on those who don't meet our standards. Okay? That's not wise at all. That's not becoming of a Christian. Christians are meant to be winsome. There is, you y'all. Know, some people are going to hate you no matter what you do, especially if they're antagonistic to your faith. Okay, Jesus promised us that. The world will hate us because it hated him first, okay? But for the most part, for the most part, if you live in a way that actually reflects the character of Jesus, not just the purity of his behavior, but also the winsomeness, the kindness, the graciousness of Christ, you'll be an attractive person. People are gonna want to be around you. Who wouldn't wanna be around someone who is honest, who's full of integrity, who is kind, who is humble, who is generous? we all want people like that around us. There's an attractiveness to the wisdom that we have in following Jesus. So two errors that we have to avoid, Paul says, don't blend in with the culture. Don't try to blend in so that you won't be left out. Be distinctive. Be a a follower of Jesus. But then also live live in such a way that you don't antagonize. You don't alienate, especially on the internet. That we live in such a way that we that we are a an aroma a fragrance of Jesus. Not everybody's going to like that. That's okay, provided that we're not the blockade. I don't want to be the reason somebody turns away from the Savior. And, um, be live live in such a way that is edifying. Live wisely. And a big part of that, Paul says, is he, he, he uses the phrase, make the most of the opportunity. Now, this is an important phrase. In the, Paul wrote originally in a Greek language. The Greek language, he tra- we translate this as buying up the time, purchasing up the time. That's what it actually means. And the illustration is something we can probably relate to. If, if you imagine your very favorite store, and you drive by one day, and you notice a big sign out front that says, close out sales. So you... Screech into the parking lot. You go into your favorite store, and there on the shelf is your favorite item in your favorite store. Slash down 90% off. Now, what are you going to do? You're not going to call your spouse and see if it's okay. You're not going to casually take one off the shelf. You're going to get a cart, and you're going to do one of these things, just just off the shelf into the cart, right? You're going to buy it all up. Because you're not going to get an opportunity like this maybe ever again, and things like this don't happen every day. You're buying up the opportunity. You're purchasing up the time, and that's what Paul is saying here. You're making the most of the opportunity. There's a moment in time here, and you're seizing that moment. It may not be here tomorrow, and so Paul's point is actually very powerful. Y'all, listen. Life is short. We want to fool ourselves into thinking it's not. But the Bible commands it over and over. Life is a vapor. We're a breath. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And therefore, opportunities to showcase Jesus in both deeds and in words are precious. And we shouldn't treat them as if we're just kind of passing through this life. We shouldn't assume that our Christian life, our Christian witness, is just going to happen by accident. It's just going to happen naturally. No, Paul says you live with a sense of urgency. Buy up the time. That God has given you because there's no guarantee for tomorrow. A great Old Testament story about this. There's a a woman in the Old Testament named Esther who was uh, apparently a very beautiful young lady and she was taken as a wife by the pagan king. Not a Jewish king. It was a very, you know, it would have been, you know, from in our eyes maybe a very scandalous thing, but it was very providential in God's eyes because the pagan king took a Jewish wife And Esther is the wife of the king. She has this wonderful ability now to sway his heart. She's his wife. But then something awful happens. One of the king's advisors tricks him into passing a decree that all the Jews be wiped out, a genocide, an extermination of God's people. Well, here Esther is caught in the middle because she's the one person in this moment who has the ability perhaps to sway the king's heart in their favor, but she's scared. She's scared. Because if she is found unpleasing, displeasing to him, he can kill her. He has that right. Well, Esther's cousin Mordecai comes to her and gives her this this wonderful kind of line in the sand there in the book. He says, listen, if you don't sway the king's heart, God will deliver us one way or the other. But who knows, Esther, but that God has raised you up for exactly this moment, for such a time as this. And the translation is, Esther, God is opening a door of salvation for you. Not just for you, but for all of his people here. And you are now able to walk through that door. So Esther, you be wise. You be courageous. The time is now. Make the most of the opportunity. Now, my guess is that maybe you're like me. We don't see ourselves as that important and fundamental to the plans of God. Esther's important, it's obvious. She gets a whole book named after her. (laughs) Paul was important, the Apostle Paul, my goodness, right? Jesus was important. Pastors are important, missionaries are important, but not me. Right? I'm not important like that to the plans of God. And can I just encourage us today that every single one of us who names the name of Jesus, we are fundamental to the plan of God for reaching his world. See, this is God's plan A. God didn't create a plan B. There's not extra Bible out there somewhere we're yet to discover that's going to give us an alternate plan. No, the plan A of God is that the ordinary people of God would be the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world, that we would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, that we would be his witnesses. That's what Jesus commanded before he ascended into heaven. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them, which means affirm their salvation, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28. Jesus' final command to us was to go, to be the witnesses that we're called to be. You may not be an Esther. I may not be a Paul. Who cares? God doesn't need us to be great. God simply needs us to be available and faithful. That's all he asks of us. And so Paul commands us, be wise in your conduct, make the most of every opportunity. Okay, well, how do I do that? Look at verse six, the last verse of our section. He says, let your speech always be with grace as though it were seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. There's a a little saying that circulates in Christian circles. Maybe you've seen it, maybe on Facebook. It says, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Maybe you've seen that before. It's a very sweet sentiment. What it means is live in such a way that your life reflects Jesus. That there should be no mistaking that by your behavior, you are a Christian and that will be your witness to the world. That's, that's really great. That's, there's truth in that. But y'all, that's wrong. That's not enough. The gospel is audible. It requires words. It requires speech. It has to be spoken. Paul said in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your life lived is a big part of things, but it's not the only thing. And so Paul says you have to speak and your speech should always be with grace. Again, I think there's a double meaning here. On one hand, your speech should be with grace. That means that we speak the grace of God. We share the gospel. We should understand what it means to be a Christian and how to invite others into what it means to be a Christian. We share the grace of Jesus. But of course, it also means that we speak graciously. That we speak in a way that, uh, that there's kindness and tenderness, that we're not starting fights, but that we're loving. And we say what we say in, in such a, a way that it, it invites people in closer deeper relationship. You know, we, we live in a culture where the loudest and angriest voices uh, get the most airtime, and that's a shame. But Paul says, let your, let your speech be gracious, and we trust, we have to trust, that grace wins the day. You may not get the audience you want because you're not loud, you're not angry, so be it. Grace will win the day. We have to trust that that's the truth. And Paul says, season your speech with salt so that you can know how you should respond to each person. I mentioned this. Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth. Salt has multiple um, purposes. One is a purifying effect. So that means that when we speak, we speak in such a way that is pure. Uh, We don't condescend to those around us. If those around us are full of complaint and gossip, and, uh, and impurity and foul mouth and, th- and coarse joking and things like that, we don't lower ourselves to that level. We speak with pure words. Right? But salt also has a, um, a flavor effect. It makes things taste good. It makes things taste better. And so we speak in such a way that, that as far as it's up to you and me, we leave people wanting more and not less. And I trust and hope that you've got somebody like this in your life, someone that when they speak, they have your full attention Maybe because you know their character. Maybe it's because of the way they speak. That there's a soothing way, a a trustworthy kind of way that they speak to you. That that person perhaps can even say hard things to you, difficult things. Stuff you don't want to hear. And yet you enjoy it. You receive it. You don't alienate yourself from that person just because they speak harsh things. Because they speak them in such a way that you know they love you and that they really care. Y'all, that is how we're all meant to be. That we don't incite people in the way we speak, simply to be bearers of truth, but we speak the truth in love. That we speak truth and grace. That people want, even if they don't like our witness, even if they don't believe in what we believe, that there's a sense in which I want to know more. You know, some people, when, when Paul spoke in Acts 17 in Athens, he talked about the resurrection of the dead. Some people, were told, scoffed and scorned and walked away. Others believed and followed. And then there was this middle group of people who simply said, I wish to hear you again on this. They were right there in the middle. And we don't really know what happened to them. If they became followers of Jesus, I assume that some did. But these were people that when Paul spoke, they said, I want to hear more. And part of that is the message, of course. But I'm sure part of that is also the messenger, that Paul spoke in such a way that invited them in. And that's how we're meant to be. So let me, let me close here with, a, with a, I hope is a healthy application. This is an application for me that I'm going to take with me this week as I travel overseas. But that's irrelevant to us. This is going to apply to you today and tomorrow and everywhere that we go. It's very, very simple what Paul's actually calling us to do. He says, if you want to be a great witness to the world, if you want your life to count, then it starts with prayer. Don't don't jump over prayer in, in an effort and hope to get to something more meaningful, to get to the real work. It starts with prayer. God, would you open a door? I encourage you to pray this every day. When you pray your prayer of gratitude, of thanksgiving, God, bless my family, God, take care of my grandma, that you would also pray, God, open a door today, even if it's just a little one, even if it's one that I might periodically walk right past and I miss it, God, would you show me the open door today and then give me the grace and the courage to walk through it God, if you don't do it, then nothing's going to happen. I can't do this. God, I need you. Would you soften the heart of someone in my life today that they might come and ask me a question and give me an opportunity? That I might be able to ask them a question that opens a door for conversation. Be willing to ask God for this. And then secondly, live wisely. Don't try to hide your convictions. That's not, we don't get anywhere that way. The world maybe doesn't like our convictions. So be it. We are going to live in a way that that reflects discipleship to Jesus. That's what we are. But we do it in a way that is honoring, that is full of blessing and love and kindness. Live with conviction, but do it in a way that is loving. And then thirdly, lastly, speak graciously. If God opens a door of opportunity with someone, whether it be in person or over the phone, at work, in your own home, whatever it may be, ask good questions and be prepared to listen well. Perhaps God will give you an opportunity. Ask someone if you can pray for them. If you hear of a need or of an issue or a struggle in their life, don't be afraid to ask. Most people would welcome that. Share a scripture with somebody. Put a scripture on your heart and prepare to share it. A scripture of God's love and grace. Most people, again, would welcome that even if they don't believe in it. Be ready to share a part of your testimony of how God has brought you through something in your life, how God opened your eyes to grace, and be ready to share it. Have it well enough in your heart and on your lips that you can share it if the time comes. Speak graciously when God gives you the opportunity. You never know when it might come. Y'all, we don't have to overcomplicate this. Sometimes I think we do, but God gives us opportunities every day. Every single day, God gives us opportunities, and we're meant to prayerfully, wisely, graciously, step through the door. Now, uh, If that still intimidates you, if it intimidates me, if it's scary, if you feel ill-equipped, again, we come back to the words of Paul, who said, if God doesn't open this door, if God doesn't grant me wisdom, if God doesn't give me clarity, if God doesn't make me bold, then I'm nothing. Then it won't happen. Paul said that. He never outgrew his need for God to do the work. And so if it's intimidating to you, that's Okay. Let it drive you to prayer. Let it drive you deeper into God. Y'all, we've got nothing to lose here. It's the Spirit's work in us. God will produce his fruit through us. We have nothing to lose, there's only gain. But we have to be willing to to come to God on the basis of God, you put me here for more than just me. You put me here to be a witness. Y'all, in the end, it's not about your obituary. It may be helpful for you to sit down and write it out. It may give you good perspective. It may help you, like Psalm 90 says, to number your days. If I live to be the average age, 77, 78, whatever it may be, if I live to be that old, how much time do I have left and what am I going to do with it? That might be a helpful thing to do. It might be a good practice for you and for your family to do. Okay? But that's not what it's about. It's not about having a great obituary. It's not about being remembered or being celebrated. Remember, your great-great-grandchildren won't even know who you were. And that may be depressing to us, but that's the reality. That can't be the goal. The goal is simply this, God, today, today, how might I live faithfully? Today, God, how might you open a door for me to make the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, to shine in my behavior and to be heard in my speech, so that the grace that we've been freely given by God might be the grace that we now freely give in how we live and how we speak. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, I pray this, this morning that we're able to acknowledge that we are weak and deficient and needy right here. Um, I, I know some wonderful witnesses in this room that I really admire and look up to. But I know most of us don't feel like we, we've got anything um, uh, to, uh, to, to show in this regard. We're, we're, we're so easily distracted, we're so easily deceived to think that this is, this is the missionary's job, this is not my job. Um, we, we're, we're, so many of us are, are overly busy. We're intimidated, we're scared. We think we've been discredited because of our past, whatever it may be, Lord. Would you this morning overwhelm our excuses, even if they're good excuses, even if maybe it feels like a good reason, would you overwhelm it? in the grace of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. We have within us a a proclamation that is good news for the world. We have within us a grace that changes our hearts, that we might live differently, and that we might be given a platform to express what it is that makes us who we are. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and boldness and prayerfulness to say, what I've been given, I want to share. Um, Who knows, but that we've been raised up right here in central Mississippi for such a time as this, that others might see and know Jesus Christ because of our faithful witness. Thank you, Lord, that it does not require great intellect from us. Thank you, Lord, that it does not require a perfect example. None of us are perfect. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't require the specialized work of a missionary, but that ordinary men and women and children can do this. Um, and so empower us for it and give us, Lord, tremendous gratitude. We get to do this. Don't let it weigh heavy on us. Let it be, let it be um, a wind in our sails. We get to be a witness for our Savior. Show us how. Show us how. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.